Well, my 14-year-old came back from his recent physical checkup telling me that his doctor now says that he is taller than me. I said, no way. It's not possible. can't happen. And Friday night, my wife says, you know, I've noticed when your son stands next to you, it's... It's true. He's taller than you. It's always my son at that point, right? Your son is taller than you. So I've decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and create some cutouts of myself that are 20% taller than the tallest person in my family. And uh, I'm going to have those around so that whenever my son comes up near me, where there are people around, I'm going to pull that cutout out, and I'm going to stand it there so my towering figure stands over him. And uh, if you ever want to take a picture of my family for some weird reason, I'm going to just need a minute or two of preparation so I can go get one of these cutouts, and then I can set that there and so I can maintain my height in my family as the tallest getting really weird, Mike. Now, if that were my response to the surpassing height of my son, you would say something like maybe get a grip, man, right? Just come on, man, up here. You are shorter than your son. That's reality. Live with it. Come on, admit it. It's just the facts. That's the way it is. You're going to have to just settle for that and live with it. That would be good advice. I would need, need that advice at that particular point. When we uh, approach some very important biblical themes, um, that exact same advice is, uh, is fantastic advice. It's essential advice. For instance, uh, when we think about our, the height, I should say, of our intellect or the height of our accomplishments or the height of our, you know, just importance, the height of our abilities, the height of our even potential, right? I find it's easy for us to create these cutouts of ourselves and make sure people see us as maybe a little more inflated than we, we actually are. As students of the Bible, you understand, and I understand, that God places a high premium on humility, Right? We know that's important. He's opposed to the proud, the Bible says. We know those verses, and man, it's important to know that as Christians, we should, we should be humble people. The problem is that we tend to think of humility as something we have to, uh, to manufacture, generate, create, work it up, get this different view of ourselves. Well, actually, biblical humility is just the opposite. Nothing you need to manufacture here. Not about you, uh, you know, thinking less of yourself. This is uh, really just, as I said, coming to grips with reality. You know, get, get, get real, just admit it. You're not taller than everyone else in your accomplishments and your intellect and your ability and your potential. You never were. You never will be. You are who you are. And biblical humility says, man, think so as to have sound judgment. Think accurately and rightly about who you are. Our culture loves to fill our heads with uh, ideas about ourselves. 
I mean, the entire advertising industry is all about trying to get you to think that you're worth it, whether it's hair color or the way they treat you at the car dealership, right? You are important. It's all about you, right? And uh, it's easy to have this inflation of this idea of who we are, but we know it's not the reality. We all have to sit and do and think about who I really am, and yet we like to run around with these cutouts of ourselves. That distance between the reality of who I am and who I want you to think that I am is something that uh, Jesus' favorite preacher was, uh, was not into. He didn't teach it. He didn't want his listeners to think that way. He wasn't into this myth of thinking wrongly about ourselves. He wants us to get a grip on reality and to, uh, to just own it, admit it, the reality of who you really are. And that's all that good preaching is all about. And when Jesus said, John the Baptist, well, he's the greatest preacher ever, that's all that John was about doing, getting us to admit reality about ourselves. And if you want to see if his feet were well-grounded, when we get to verse 15 in Luke chapter 3 that we've been studying, we see he gets an opportunity to think uh, rightly about himself when everyone else is trying to put him on a pedestal that uh, surpasses who he really is. When they start saying, man, maybe you're the Christ, he responds with a statement that is really the quintessential expression of humility, perhaps you know, distilled in other parallel passages in the synoptic gospels in a, in a way that we, we can sum it up in three or four words. But we get a great response from John that's not false humility. It's not self-loathing. It's not self-hating. It's, uh, it's true biblical humility. And it's what God expects from us. And it's not just something where we say, well, let's just talk about this aspect of morality and, and, and biblical ethics and, and try and apply it to our lives. It is essential to everything as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to who we are before God. If we don't have humility, we really don't even have Christianity. And you can't be a Christian without this. Take a look at it with me as we continue our study of Luke chapter 3 and verse 15 where it says the people were in expectation. I mean, there was a lot happening here. There was all this talk about the coming kingdom, and they thought it's, it's coming. The Christ of the Old Testament is arriving. And it says in the middle of verse 15, they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Maybe he's the one the Old Testament talked about, not as the forerunner, maybe he's the guy, the king the embodiment of all the promises to Abraham and to David. Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. Setting up now an, an example, a, a parallel, right, a contrast. But he who is mightier than I is coming. I can't compare to him. As a matter of fact, if you want to see who I am in relation to him, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, there's a line we don't quite catch in our culture. I mean, there's nobody untying anybody's sandals. That's a weird thing. We don't even tie up our sandals unless you shop at some exotic place and you're a female, I suppose. But everyone wore sandals in the ancient world. And you walked around on dusty, dirty streets, and your feet looked like junk when you had traveled. And your sandals, I suppose if you were really rich, you might have a, a servant who would come and sit there with a basin and a towel and begin to untie the straps of your sandals. I suppose the closest parallel we may have in our day is, uh, 
you know, clipping someone else's toenails. Gross. People have servants for that? I don't know. But I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that's the kind of menial task that we're talking about here. That I'm not even worthy to do that. He will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, there are two groups in the crowd. There are the brood of vipers that are just there to check out what's going on, and they're not repentant, they're not contrite, and we know that he's concerned about those people rejecting the message of repentance. And then there are those that are lined up to be baptized who are repentant, and they are contrite, asking, what shall we do? And we've studied all of that in this context. Now, some interpreters take a look at this, and they say, well, you know, this is maybe two things as a part of a good baptism. Christ is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and then refine you like that's often used. Fire is a good thing. Well, I, I, I concede that the broader context of the Bible sometimes uses fire in a positive sense, but I think you should always try to interpret things with the immediate context in view, which in verses 17 and 18, it, it, fire is not a good thing here. That's representative of God's judgment. So he's going to do one of two things with you. He's either going to baptize you, immerse you, right, envelop you, that's what the word baptizo means, into the Holy Spirit, or he's going to baptize you and immerse you, envelop you in fire. And that's not a good thing. Verse 21, we'll get to verses 17 through 20, Lord willing, next week. I mean, to talk about the fire aspect of this, I mean, that's plan your vacations next weekend, right? You don't want to be here for that sermon. We're going to talk about John's view of hell, the biblical view of hell. So if you've got something to do next Sunday that would keep you from church, maybe that's a good weekend to miss. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, more on that when we get there, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So in the confession fest of the repentance, the baptism of repentance, here you've got one that gets baptized in line with the, the sinners, and yet he's being hailed as the one loved by God, the son of God, well pleased, uh, well pleasing to God. Let's start up here at the beginning and deal with this. Verses 15 and 16. Leave that last line for us as we get to the second point. But just encapsulating this idea of them saying, John, you're great. Are you the Messiah? And he says, listen, you want to compare me to the Messiah? I'm not even worthy to clip his toenails. Okay? That is a picture of biblical humility. Not because John wasn't, as Jesus would later say, greater than all the other preachers and prophets, and that's a big statement. I mean, he is head and shoulders above them, but he says, listen, there's no place for pride in my life to think I'm the best, because if you want to talk about the best, that's Christ. And next to Christ, I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandals and wash his feet. That job is above me not below me. It's a good place for us all to start if we're going to talk about the virtue of humility that is necessary for conversion and necessary in the Christian life. Number one on your outline, let's put it this way. We need to be humbled by Christ's authority. That's where we need to start. We need to measure ourselves 
not by one another and not by your past and not by your progression, but you need to think about your life as it measures against the perfect one, the one who is loved by God and well-pleasing to God, the authoritative Son of God. That's the right place to start. Now, every synoptic gospel and even the gospel of John deals with the baptism of Jesus. I'd like to turn you to John 3 and and we just read in our daily Bible reading in Mark 1, the, the, the scene, and maybe we'll even touch on Matthew 3, but in Matthew 3 and Luke 3 and John 3, we're dealing with the baptism of Jesus, or at least I should say a narrative in John 3 of John being approached as Jesus is advancing in his ministry and people are going to his disciples to get baptized. And there's one line in here that may be helpful to codify biblical humility that I know is familiar to you, so let's look at it. John chapter 3. And when you think of cutting tone, I just, I don't think we, we think that's gross, but, and it is. Um, if I said, you know, there's a couple guys on the city council, they're kind of getting old here in Liso, they're your leaders, um, but bending over to cut their tone, it's just getting hard for them. So what I need here after church is I need a couple people to go over to a couple city council members and cut their toenails for them, okay? Now, most of you will not sign up for that ministry, not because you think it's above you, but because the job you think is below you. I'm not going to do that. Let him hire some nurse or I don't know, something. I'm not going to cut this old man's toenails. See, this, John says is so far above me, I don't even qualify to do it. That's John's perspective. A very practical issue. In verse 25 of John 3, did you turn there? Discussion between, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and they said, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, I'm telling you, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Your ministry is uh, declining. His ministry is increasing. And John answered, person cannot receive even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now, here's the deal. That's a positive statement both about Christ. Clearly, this is the Lord's Christ, and all of that is assigned to him sovereignly by God. But it's a concern over John's diminishing role and it works in the inverse as well. Everything I have has been given to me by God, and if God takes that away, it sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? In the beginning of the book of Job, he gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I realize my position here before God. As Paul said, you know, what do I have that I haven't received? I can't even earn a paycheck without God keeping my brain cells firing in my head. All of this comes from God. Verse 28 you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ. I told you that, but I've been sent before him. You've heard me say that. Verse 29, the one who has, this is a good illustration now, the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's me, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, here's the line we all remember. Underline it. He must increase and I must decrease. Why? Because I realize this. The authority of Christ is really all that matters. His position, your assessment of him, 
Your assessment of me doesn't matter. And when it comes to you wanting to prop me up and concerned about my ministry, in this case, and my influence and my accomplishments, I'm, I'm only concerned about his. I'm not concerned about mine. There's biblical humility. This is not self-loathing. This is not contrived. This is not manufactured. This is someone who understands the authority and greatness of God. And I guess to put it in terms of the illustration he brings up, the party is not for me, right? He's the groom. I'm a friend of the groom. To put it in modern terms, I'm just a groomsman. I'm not the groom. Now, I've done a lot of weddings and stood there and gone through the rehearsals and all of that with all these people bridesmaids and, and, and groomsmen, and I'll tell you, every now and then there is a groomsman who thinks the whole party is about him. I don't know why you'd invite that jerk in your, in your wedding party, but occasionally there's that guy. And I, I've had to literally, I can think of one in particular that so pushed all my buttons in the rehearsal, I had to pull him aside, listen, dude, this, do you understand this is not your wedding, right? Everybody, I would hope, who comes to participate in the bridal party of a wedding understands the party's not for you. Now, that's such a good picture of reality when everybody's telling you, you know, the party's for you. This world, life, satisfaction, enjoyment, happiness, all the accoutrements that they're trying to sell you, it's all for you to be happy. It's all for you to be having the fun and, and being you know, experienced and all that they want to sell you. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about the Lord's Christ. It's about Jesus, and that should change our perspective about everything as it relates to who we are. That's biblical humility. Now, why did he view the coming Christ in such extreme terms, mightier than I, as the other gospel writer puts it, outranking me? Uh, increase. His fame needs to increase. Mine, not important. Let it decrease. Turn with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Daniel, and give me, I'll give you one example of the messianic prophecies that, as John studied them as a young man, preparing for his role as the preacher and the predecessor of Christ, he understood the authority of Christ. Now, I know they're cousins. You figured that out from the early part of Luke. I mean, they're related. And, and, and that even makes it more difficult to put someone in the proper place in your mind as authoritative. But he recognized that Christ was to be, Jesus was to be, the Christ of the Old Testament. And he's put in these terms. And I should bring this up. The phrase that we're going to find here in Daniel chapter 7 is the phrase, the Son of Man. Now, you, you've been around the block in Christianity long enough to know that Jesus loved to call himself that. That was one of his favorite phrases. When he spoke of himself, he liked to call himself the Son of Man, which is a weird appellation and title to apply to yourself, the Son of Man, when technically you're not the Son of Man, right? Uh, follow me? You were conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you're the son of a, of a woman named Mary, but son of man, you're that, I don't even know how that applies. Now, remember in the Bible, whenever we see son of, what we're talking about is the embodiment of something, right? And, and when Barnabas, for instance, was called the son of encouragement, what do we mean by that? Right? He, he, he expressed that. He, he was that. He was encouraging all the time. See, when the son of man became an important phrase in looking for, toward, toward the Messiah, that Jesus used 86 times in the New Testament that, that is used of him or he used himself. 25 times in Luke alone, the Son of Man is used. That phrase came from this text in Daniel 7 where they were thinking about the coming of 
I say they, God was revealing this to Daniel, the coming of Christ. And the reason this phrase was important was because now there was an embodiment of deity in man. And that was weird. This was like a son of man, although it wasn't, right? This is the son of God. This is the embodiment of God. And yet, he's found in human form. This sounds like Philippians 2, right? Found in the, in the appearance of man. Now, was he man? Absolutely. But he was more than that. He was God. And with that came just extreme, incomparable authority. And that's what we often forget when we pray, when we evangelize, when we talk about Christ, when we you know, read his word. We need to remember that. Let's look at the text from which this phrase came. In Daniel chapter 7, just for some context, let's start in verse 9. As the vision that he has here, he sees thrones placed. Whenever you see that, you're in an important place. This is more than a boardroom. There are thrones that were placed. And the Ancient of Days, here's the phrase for the, for the father. He takes his seat. His clothing was white like snow. This picture of, of holiness and perfection. His hair of his head was pure wool. This, this picture of wisdom. His throne was fiery flames. Picture of unmitigated authority. Its wheels were burning fire. This is a fearful, trepidatious scene. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now, how would that be? I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a big, kind of authoritative, scary courtroom, and they say, all rise, and this old guy walks out. You know, even if you're not into that kind of thing, there's a sense of, ooh, I mean, look at this. Thousands of thousands are serving him, and 10,000 times 10,000 standing before him in this throne room, in this vision of God's authority. Now, the context was about the earthly authorities that were uh, represented by these images of horns, the simile of the horn. Take a look at verse 11. I look then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. That's the context. You can look it up later, the first eight verses of the passage. And as I look, the beast was killed and the body was destroyed, given over, burned with fire for the rest of the beasts. Their dominion was taken away. Because every earthly authority that rivals itself against God is all going to be taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, all that's prophetic. That's for another sermon. Now, verse 13, back to the courtroom. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, this is worth underlining, one like a son of man. Now that's unique. Why? Not because Daniel, wow, look at that guy, looks like a man. Well, because he's not a man. He came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. His origins wasn't earth. His origins are heaven. He's now before the Father. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion. You know what that means, right? Power and glory, majesty, and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Who serves him? Everyone. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away like every other earthly authority. It's not delegated. This is inherent, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is a picture in John's mind when he thinks about the coming of Messiah, the Son of Man. That picture is one that when someone says, are you that guy? What are you going to say? If you really know the picture of the Christ, you're going to say, no way. 
No way. I would not be worthy to step up to that person and untie the straps of his sandals. That is the person that Israel's waiting for. That's the person that we need to turn all of our attention to. That, the image of that person in your mind needs to increase. And if you're thinking I'm someone great, your vision of me needs to decrease. That's the Christ. Now, practically and pastorally for just a minute, how do you speak to that Christ when you pray? Watch yourself, would you? He's not this gentle Jesus, meek and mild in his humbled state of the first advent. I mean, you picture him with that light blue sash and a little bird on his shoulder, smiling, brown eyes, butterflies flitting around. Oh, Jesus. And then don't turn on Christian radio because all you'll hear is images of you when you meet him coming up and, I don't know, dancing with him and high-fiving him and... Yo, bro, Jesus, what's happening? Do you think that's what this is going to be like? No. This Jesus is my homeboy perspective that people have, your forehead will be pressed against the floor, you do understand, when you meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you don't measure yourself by that, that's perfect humanity. Someone thinks you're good at your job. Someone thinks you're, you're smart. Someone thinks you're godly. Please measure yourself against that and just sit back and recognize, oh, listen, you want to be impressed with, with someone in human form? It ain't me. You need to be impressed with him. Your view of me seems a little too high because I understand myself in relation to him and I'm not worthy to cut his toenails. He's great. I'm not. That's biblical humility. Now, if your view of Christ is he's your buddy, oh, a little taller than you, I suppose, then people start to give you the accolades or you start looking in the mirror and thinking, I'm pretty accomplished, pretty smart, or whatever it is that you start to feel good about. The only thing you can do when the preacher gets up and says you need to be humble is for you to try to manufacture a lesser view of yourself. And that's not what I want you to do. I want you to get a better view of him and then see yourself in comparison to Christ. And that's not, well, I guess Christ is a little bit tall. It's like you standing next to the U.S. Bank building in downtown Los Angeles. How about that? The largest building on the West Coast. I mean, you, 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 are, not, you, you are not in any way compared to the Christ of heaven, who has been granted all dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and everyone is called to serve him. How do you speak of him to your friends? What's he like in your evangelism? When you talk about Christ? I mean, you've seen these bumper stickers, try God. Does that not offend you? Like he's some kind of elixir, you know, you gotta check out, maybe this will work for you. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His Christ will reign and rule forever. And if you want a picture of what he looks like now, go to Rev 1 sometime and look at Revelation chapter 1 where out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. His eyes are flaming fire. This is the all-authoritative one. You want to be biblically humble? Don't sit around going, oh, I'm just a terrible worm. It's not about that. It's about you comparing yourself next to the King of Kings and getting a right perspective on life. Get a grip on reality. Now, we don't have time for this text, but if we did, I would take you to Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It'd be worth jotting down for some extra credit homework here, I suppose. But that's a perspective that God wants us to have 
And if we have it, all I want to say about Malachi 1 is it will express itself in how you live and how you act and how you pray and how you give and how you sacrifice and how you minister. And some of you have casual views of Christ, and therefore your life is all about giving him your leftovers. He's something you do on the weekends or maybe on Thursday nights, but when it comes to this, the centrality of Christ, right, you're really just an egocentric person with Christ kind of slapped on the side of your life. When in reality, we're called to be Christocentric, recognizing the party's not about me. He's not my butler to make my life better. I exist for him. And you can talk about that, and some of you give a head nod to that, that thought, but does your life reflect that, that I'm not the hub of this thing? that all the goodies in the world are not to bring glory to me and to bring satisfaction and pleasure to me, but everything was created to bring glory to him and bring satisfaction and pleasure to him. If that's the way you view your home and your job and your marriage and your family and your kids, now you're starting to live a Christocentric life. John demonstrates he's not egocentric. And when he tells people they got two future realities with the Christ of the Bible in the bottom of verse 16, that you're either going to be enveloped in the Holy Spirit or you're going to be enveloped in the fire of judgment. And he explains that in verses 17 and 18, which is next week, Lord willing. That's something that brings us to another level of humility. Not only as I kind of objectively view myself against the authority of Christ, I start to get myself in perspective and come to grips with reality. Now I recognize Christ has come on the scene and given a diagnosis. You have two things you've got to deal with here. Either you need a radical change of your life, a la the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that in a second. Or you're going to face judgment. That's a very somber diagnosis. One that leaves you with really no third option but either to get the fix that the Holy Spirit will provide you or to face certain wrathful judgment. Now, we don't like that. As a matter of fact, I've been taught in seminary, and that's not the kind of church you want to build. You don't want to preach those kind of... That's the turn and burn of the old school theology. We're new now. We're fresh. We're out there trying to grow crowds and build churches and be nice and don't talk about hell and all of that. That's why I gave you the warning. You want to miss one, a sermon on hell, don't come next weekend. But that was the message of the Scriptures, and that was the sermon that John preached, and that's the theme of his ministry that Jesus said was the greatest ever. Let's fill in point number two after we look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, then we'll write this down. Because what I want to emphasize with this is that when they examined the theme of the Holy Spirit in relation to the coming of the Messiah and the new covenant age. They didn't see it as some, you know, benefit to your life like some self-help book or self-improvement course. This was a radical kind of surgery that we needed to have any standing before God because our problem was so severe. That's an important sentence. Did you catch that? It wasn't this sense that the Spirit would somehow be added to you so you could be happier and whistle whistle a more happy tune as you move through life. It was to fix a problem in you that was so bad that if it didn't get fixed, you you would face the judgment of God. 
So they thought, new age, new covenant, Christ is coming. What's going to happen? Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36 gives us some of these themes. I'll start in verse 25 because even the baptism of John kind of had this referent back to the sprinkling of clean water on them, which is obviously symbolic, right? It's a picture of cleansing and forgiveness. Read it with me. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, verse 25, follow it along, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. All the sin problem we have is going to be, going to be cleansed and forgiven and pardoned. And I will give you a new heart, because that's the problem. Your heart's messed up. And I'll put a, a, give you a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S now, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So if you were the Old Testament student waiting for the expectation of the coming Christ, knowing it would inaugurate what is here in Ezekiel 36, the new covenant age, you expected that the spirit was going to have to do some serious heart surgery on you. If you were going to be forgiven, right? And John's out there saying, repent, right? Be forgiven. That was the connection, the two things. Repent, forgive. And the picture of cleansing and the baptism. Here, now what you need is the Holy Spirit. And it's going to do radical surgery on you and redirect your life. See, that dilemma of only having two options, fixing the problem of your sin or facing inevitable judgment, is a humbling thing. Let's put it down that way, and let me illustrate it for you. Number two on your island, we need to be humbled by our dilemma. And our dilemma is you can't stay the same. You will not be able to have a third option in this. And let me illustrate it this way because some of you have been through it, or if not, you've done it vicariously because someone in your family that you love has been through it, and that is they've sat across from the doctor in the doctor's office, office after all the lab tests, and the doctor look at, looked at them and said, listen, you have a serious, grave problem cancer, heart disease, whatever it is. Let's stick with heart disease for the sake of Ezekiel 36. If you do not have open heart surgery, you will die. That's what your doctor says. Now, you, some of you have been there. Two options. See, if, if you came out of that, called your wife on the way home from the doctor, and your wife says, well, what did the doctor say? Well, the doctor said, I got a terrible heart. It's a ticking time bomb. It's going to kill me at any moment. I better schedule surgery immediately and have open heart surgery. Oh, wow, that's what the doctor said? Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Uh, I, 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 nothing. What? Nothing. The only way you can do nothing when you get that news is if you don't believe the diagnosis, right? If the diagnosis is accurate, You've got two options. And most of us, trusting our doctor and all the, the lab tests, we sit there and immediately become humbled. Do we not? Oh, man, I need either heart surgery, radical heart surgery, or I'm going to die. See? I want a third option. I just want to continue on the way it is. Well, you can't have that option if the diagnosis is accurate. As a matter of fact, what grips us? in our spirit when we hear that cancer diagnosis or that heart disease or whatever the terminal illness is, just, whew, it's a sense of fear. It's a sense of trepidation, skating on thin ice. That's, you see, where the gospel goes. It, it delivers a diagnosis, 
you're sinful. Why does Paul spend all those chapters at the beginning of his, of his magnum opus on the gospel in the book of, of Romans and continually try to say, you're sinful, you're sinful, you're sinful, you're sinful. Everyone's sinful. I don't care how better you are than the next guy. You're sinful. And because of that problem, you're going to face the judgment of God. You are, as Paul says, storing up for yourselves wrath for the day of God's judgment. If that's the diagnosis, then I'm not able to continue life as it is. See, we grow up in life, bipping through life, you know? Well, think way back. The earliest memories you have, just happy kid. I don't know what your child was like. You had birthdays and park runs and bike rides and you went to school. Everything's cool until you get hit with the gospel. You're going to hell, right? Wow. Why? Because you're a sinner. Your conscience bears witness to it. Creation should be shouting it to you. In one way or another, you measure yourself against all that God has created. You know you have a problem. You may have been suppressing the truth of that and your unrighteous behavior, trying to look the other way, but you know it. God's speaking to you on that matter. Your conscience bears witness to it. You've heard the gospel. Now you know. Radical surgery. I need to be enveloped in the spirit and have that change of life that the new covenant promises. Or I'm going to face judgment. There's no third option. How many people want to hear the gospel and say, well, I'm going to decide to not decide? That's a decision. Is it not? If I tell my wife, what am I, my wife says, what are you going to do with the diagnosis that you've just had? Nothing. I've decided to not decide. Well, what have I decided? To die, right? That's what I've decided. I don't want the surgery. I don't know. It just seems too radical. I just don't, I like my life the way it is. Go to your evangelistic endeavors now when people tell you that. I don't want to become a Christian. Why? Because I, I, I just, all those changes and all that, I, I just, I, I like my life the way it is. I've had so many people tell me that kind of thing. Well, picture yourself across from the doctor. I just like the things the way they are. I love eating my cheeseburgers and clogging my arteries. I, I, don't, I don't want to change. Well, I get that. Right? All of us as non-Christians facing the gospel say we like our sin. We don't want to change. And I certainly don't want heart surgery and become a Jesus freak when this thing is over. And yet we don't have a choice. was the beginning, really, I think, of the self-help books, at least the best-selling ones. Remember the old book? came out in 1969. You oldies can remember this one. I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that book? I'm okay, you're okay. Dr. Tom Harris, PhD, I'm quite sure. He writes this book about us trying to see ourselves the way we ought to, and that is, I'm okay, you're okay. Now, I know, and I want to minimize the, the, the work he put into this. And he builds this big paradigm of, you know, we all grow up thinking our parents are okay and we're not okay. We need to live up. And we go into adulthood and we see everybody else. They must have their lives together and I don't. And what we need to recognize is that I'm okay and you're okay. We're all okay. Grow up. I mean, that's a, Mike Fabara's summary of Tom Harris's book on I'm okay. In, in Life magazine, they reviewed the book in the early 70s. And I wrote it down. Here's what they said in Life Magazine. It ranks, speaking of I'm okay, you're okay, it ranks right up there with the Bible. I love that. Because as soon as I saw Bible and I'm okay, you're okay, I thought I want to rename the book and rewrite it, right? Because it certainly isn't I'm okay, you're okay. Here's the good title. I'm not okay and you're not okay, <laughs> Right? That's the feeling in the doctor's office when you get the diagnosis, right? We're not okay. 
And the Bible says this ubiquitous universal problem of sin makes us all not okay. Now, the non-Christian down the street doesn't want to hear that. They don't want to hear, what do they want? I want everything to be okay. I mean, it's our favorite self-help book. That's what we want. The problem is, if the diagnosis is true, we only face one of two things. You need Christ. He'll either be your savior or your judge. He'll either envelop you in the spirit and change you, making you clean and giving you new impulses and a new heart, or he will be your judge and assign you to a place of punishment. Turn or burn. I don't like that Christianity. Okay. I don't either, but I'm not making the rules. The Bible says this is our problem. You can deny it all you want, but certainly at the end of your life, don't say I didn't tell you, right? I mean, that's what preaching is all about, to have us be humbled by the dilemma. One passage on this, please. One more, I guess. Have we looked at Ezekiel 36? Could you look real quickly at Luke 18? This sounds so negative, but let me try to turn this around here. Salvage this sermon. Luke 18. Jesus reveals the problem in such terms. Because I know, I know how the conversation's going to be in the cars for a lot of you on the way home. That guy, he's so, I mean, I don't know, burr in his saddle, rock in his shoe, bad childhood, I, needs, I don't know. He needs to lighten up. Vacation for Mike, right? I don't know what it, I don't know what it, it'll be. But, or you're, maybe you're new. <laughs> I mean, I can only hear it. That church, right? Ooh, turn or burn. They love it. Masochistic theology of it. If you go away thinking, these guys are just crazy because I know I'm okay, then here, here's what I, I'm confident of. The problem Jesus points out in Luke 18, you are busy measuring yourself with other people. And how did this sermon start? Real perspective comes when we measure ourselves to Christ. God's standard, the way life was intended to be lived, the person who is the only one on whom God's favor perfectly rests inherently because of the life that he led, right? That is the measuring stick. Jesus addressed some people like those who will drive away saying, they're just, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. I do a lot of good things, I'm fine. Verse 9. He told this parable, this story, this illustration, Luke 18, 9, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. A lot of people will encounter sermons like this, and they'll go away going, I'm fine. I'm trusting that I'm fine. I don't have this problem. And they treat others with contempt. Two men, here's the parable, the illustration. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And we dealt with that earlier in this series, did we not? most despised segment of society. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that, here's a good line to, to underline, I'm not like other men. There's your first mistake. You're measuring yourself against other men. And you can do that, you know, nicely put together Orange County life, 
you can measure yourself to the people you see on the 11 o'clock news and feel good because you're, you're not shooting cops on the freeway, right? You're all right. I mean, you're a pretty good person. And he goes on saying, look, I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not, or even look at this guy, this guy trying to pray over here, that tax collector. And some of you even go there in your mind. You wouldn't say it, but he's in his own privacy of his own prayers here. And that guy in my small group, whew, Lord, thank you. That guy's life. So glad I'm not like that. Because, look at my resume, I, I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. There's a guy, it sounds a little bit like John, who recognizes that I don't deserve to even be accepted by this one to clip his toenails. Wouldn't lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that was true of the Pharisee. The Bible says it's a universal problem. Oh, in differing, differing degrees, I get that. But when you measure yourself with other people, you may not come to that conclusion. The tax collector may have had the same initial problem. He's comparing himself to the Pharisee, thinking, I, I'm not like that guy, but he knows one thing that's accurate and true. I'm a sinner, and I need God's mercy. Jesus comments on the story and says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house, big biblical word here, underline it, justified. The whole book of Romans is about that one word, and that is that God considers me righteous and forgiven. Why? Because I did it? I earned it? No, because I threw myself on the mercy of God. Post-Christ, I threw myself on the mercy of God with the focus of my faith in Christ. He went to his house justified rather than the other. Now, you want our theme? Tie it all together. Bottom of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be debased or humbled, but the one who humbles himself, you see yourself rightly, right? You will be exalted. Be humbled by our dilemma. And I guess that's a good transitional text to get us to verses 21 and 22 of Luke 3, which we have no time for. But let's look at it as the phones begin to ring across the auditorium with the coolest ringtones ever. Sorry. Mine still just has the regular ring. It's so boring, right? How many regular ring phones do we have out there? You boring people like me. I got to download a, a ringtone like that one I just heard. It's awesome. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to compliment you. <laughs> After the service, you can come up and show me how to do that. So that when I get a call during church or wherever it might be, some cool tune will come through. <laughs> Making a long sermon longer. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus had been baptized as well. He was praying. Heavens opened. The Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, Get the contrast here. Everyone's lining up going, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I need to repent. Psh, baptize. Now you got Jesus here. He gets baptized for some strange reason. More on that in a second. And God says, I'm pleased with this one. What does that mean? Here's the one, and we don't have time to look at this, but in John 1:29, when John the Baptist first sees Christ coming, the Bible says, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognizes this about the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God with 
without blemish, without defect, the one that is morally perfect, comes to him, he says that's the one that solves our sin problem. The Christ that is presented at the baptism of John is presented as good while we recognize ourselves as sinful. See, now the man on the Temple Mount in the story that Jesus tells, who goes home justified, doesn't have the focal point of faith. But here we have it. Now the attention, the first inklings of the gospel, we have the attention turned to Christ. You're sinful, you're in need of forgiveness, here's the perfect one. Now I could put this point down if I wanted to, be humbled by God's solution, but I decided to, 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 to phrase it this way because this is the essence of the gospel. Number three, let us be confident in God's solution. Oh, it's humbling that you can't solve your own problem, but how good it is to rest in a problem that's solved by God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the explanation of the gospel transfer. My sin to him, his righteousness to me. That's the exchange. And we don't have time for this either, but in Matthew chapter 3, it makes clear when John says what you would expect him to say, why are you coming to me to get baptized? You're not a sinner in need of repentance. I am the sinner in need of repentance. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, permit it at this time, so as to fulfill all righteousness. Christ is going to do the act of baptism here, submit to it. Not because he is needing everyone to see that he's repentant, because he hasn't done anything sinful but to do the acts that were required of people so that he might be able to offer that righteousness in this great transaction, the great exchange of my life for his, so that his baptism would be applied to me. Well, I did get baptized. Yeah, but you know what? Everything we do at some level is colored with our fleshly humanity. And you may have gotten up on the stage and had a great day getting baptized, but there's something, I suppose, at some point in our lives, even the most righteous act that we do, that would be much better exchanged for Christ's action. And so it is, even if just 3% of your motive was skewed that day to have the perfectly motivated baptism of Christ applied to you in human form to your life. Are you following this? That's the righteous exchange. And so it is permitted to fulfill all righteousness. Now, a quick note on verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Some of you should be throwing a flag on that place saying, I don't get it. You haven't had the Holy Spirit for 33 years of your life? Why now? Note this, I'll give you the conclusion first because we're running out of time. I need to stop talking about the time. Does that make it feel longer? It probably does. This is symbolic, okay? Number one, Jesus didn't need any affirmation of the Holy Spirit's presence in his life. This was for the crowds. He wasn't devoid of the Spirit. Even John, who's lesser than Jesus, is said in Luke chapter 1, to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth, which is a mind blower to start with because that doesn't happen for the rest of us. So if John is filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth, you're telling me Jesus was devoid of the Holy Spirit? We read in our, in our, in our second chapter of Luke that he's sitting there as a 12-year-old calling Jesus his own father. If he's in communion with the first person of the Godhead as the second person of the Godhead, are you telling me he's not been in, in communion with the third person of the Godhead for his whole life? Of course not. This is symbolic. For who? For everybody watching. To see that the Spirit of God now, because he is to be called the Christ, 
Christ means the anointed one. Anointing is the pouring of symbolic, uh, well, it's the pouring of literal oil on the head of someone in the Old Testament to inaugurate them as the king or the prophet. Now, he is being anointed, if you will, in a symbolic way, showing that he is chosen by God to be the Son of Man because he is the Son of Man. That is the picture of this bodily form descending on him. Now, if you look at all the parallel passages in in Matthew, Mark, and John, you'll find that it says descending on him like a dove, descending like a dove, descending like a dove. This is a simile relating to how it descends. Luke is the only one who adds this this phrase, in bodily form. What is this? I'm not sure. I didn't record it. I wasn't there. But I'm assuming from the language, as most good exegetes would tell you, that there's some form of some body, if you will, some picture from heaven as the sky opens up and down comes this this bodily form onto Christ, and its descent is like a dove. Now, I know everyone likes to picture a dove coming down on him, but the simile is about the mode of transport, because he, I mean, they didn't have the helicopter metaphor, right? Descending on him like a helicopter or a jetpack. Well, what descends from the sky gracefully? A dove. It's descending like a dove. It descended, though, in bodily form. I hate to blow that little sacred cow for you, but this is probably a body of some kind coming down and resting on Christ, descending, though, like a dove would. Now, on the back of your worksheet, I provided a couple of books. You can read through the titles. The ones that deal with baptism can reinforce a very brief explanation of this that I'm going to give you now. And that is, and most of you don't need this, but if Christ's anointing, if you will, the coming of the Spirit on his life was symbolic, it's interesting that it happens in a context where people who repent and get forgiven get in a body of water, the Jordan River, and get baptized, which is also symbolic, right? Clearly, this wasn't efficacious, if you will. It didn't do something to these people other than get them wet and make them obedient. But what it did do was symbolize to everyone watching that they were repentant. Believer's baptism is the same way. And you can jot this reference down, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. It should be in any notes that deal with baptism because the clarification is made there. This is not the washing of the dirt off your body. It's not the physical act of having hydration around you in a, in a, in a stream. This is about an appeal to God for a good conscience based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What saves you is not water baptism. What saves you is being enveloped in the Spirit of God, enveloped, baptized by the Spirit. That's why when we have baptisms up here, if you've ever been to one of these, I always start with this question, does baptism save you? And everybody says, which one? one? That's the right answer. Because if you want to talk about being saved, being transferred from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of light, being a son of, of, of wrath, being the target of God's destruction one day, or being the object of His grace, I need to be enveloped in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, right? That's not a Pentecostal experience where you jabber when you're done. That means you're being moved from... I'm sorry. I didn't mean that to be offensive in any way. Uh, 
It means being moved from the dominion of being lost to being saved, being baptized in the Spirit, and that does save you. When you express that symbolically in water baptism, which was symbolic in John's baptism and symbolic in believer's baptism, see, that doesn't save you. Oh, great, I don't have to do it. Whoo, was embarrassing. It'd be humbling to do that. You have been listening to this sermon, right? I mean, humility is not only the key to salvation. Humility is the key to obedience. It's me saying, I don't care what everybody thinks. I don't care what people will say. I don't care what it'll do to my reputation. I want to obey Christ. The first thing Christ asks people to do who are repentant is be baptized. See? Oh, yes, baptism doesn't save you, but that doesn't get you off the hook. You need to be baptized. And you can fix that real quick if you're a note taker and you haven't been baptized after you've become a Christian. Just jot this down. Mark at compasschurch.org. Mark at compasschurch.org. That'll get you to Pastor Mark Kelly. You can get on the rotation for our next baptism, which is coming up in the future. That's the only date I know. It's coming soon. I plan to be there, though. Christ is the answer to our problem. Be confident in that. When you drive out of the parking lot, you're going to be bombarded. Again, I mean, the narrative will be picked up not by your pastor and not by your Bible. It'll be picked up by the world. And it will continue to tell you, you're number one. The party's about you. You're okay. I'm okay. We're all okay. We don't have any real serious problems. It'll tell you. You're self-sufficient, self-reliant. You can fix your own problems. A little help from our product, perhaps. But the reality is, you and I are, as the Bible continually puts, unworthy servants right, of the great king. We are people who have a problem that we cannot fix. No good works can remedy the problem. But we have confidence in one who's solved the problem for us. In the words of Psalm 33, 16, in the Septuagint ascribed to David, it says, the king is not saved by his great army nor as a churchgoer by his church attendance or his good works. And a warrior is not delivered in the battle by his great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation. His great might can't rescue. But the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Our soul, David says, waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Stand with me as I dismiss us in a word of prayer. As Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And God, when it comes to our salvation and not the battle on an ancient battlefield, how much more true is that? We stand before you, as most people would think, we're not going to be... Uh, pulling out our resume and talking about how many good things we did. All that's going to matter is whether we we're allied with Christ, whether or not our faith was in Him. As Paul said in Philippians 3, that we counted our own accomplishments as nothing but rubbish that we might gain Christ. The righteousness that we need is the righteousness, Paul said, that comes by faith. So let us trust in the finished work of Christ because we stand here like the people in line at John's baptism, recognizing that we're sinners all in various degrees, but sinners together. And what we need is the one that God perfectly loves, the one who perfectly lived, the one uh, whose favor, your favor, rested on perfectly. We need that life exchanged for our life. So we trust in you for that end. 
And that that day, whenever we meet you, whether we get killed in a car accident this afternoon or whether we live out a long life and die in some nursing home or whether the rapture takes place tomorrow, we'll stand before our great God and though we will be struck, I'm sure, with the awesome power and authority of that God, we're all going to be able to rejoice in the fact that our salvation was secured because of the finished work of Christ. So it's in his name that we rejoice and confidently expect to see you and rejoice in our forgiveness and revel in our status as adopted children of the King. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys.